my privilege to introduce our guest this morning to you. And uh, if you happen to be here during the first hour, you know what uh, what a blessing and a treat you're in for. Uh, Dr. James Renahan is with us today, and he is Dean and Professor of Historical Theology at the Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies at Westminster Seminary in California. Jim is also one of the pastors at Christ Reformed Baptist Church, Vista, California. And he and his wife, Lynn, have been married for 38 years, have five grown children, among them Susie, who sang for us just now, and Beth, of course, we know. And they have eight grandchildren. He is the author of several books, including True Love, Understanding the Real Meaning of Christian Love, Edification and Beauty, and most recently, Faith and Life for Baptists, as well as articles in many Christian magazines and scholarly journals. He studied at Liberty University, Seminary of the East, and received his Ph.D. from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And in just a moment, Brother Renahan will come and, uh, and offer for us a portion of the Word of God. I said in the first hour, and I might take a moment to say again, as a young Baptist pastor of years past, I came out of a tradition that did not hold to covenant theology, but I was finding it in the Word of God, and I was struggling internally because of what I had always heard and been taught, uh, but I was finding otherwise in the Bible. And about that time, a friend of mine passed along a CD from a conference. I never heard of him before, but Brother Renahan did a series of messages on covenant theology he and, and other men as well. And listening to that was the push that I needed. It was solidified that uh, I was not crazy. I was seeing the truth of the Word of God, and I, I owe a tremendous debt to him, uh, although he did not uh, know it at the time. But isn't that the way that the Spirit of God works? And so praise be to God. I invite you this morning to the portion of God's Word in 2 Corinthians, 13th chapter. We'll read verses 11 to 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be light-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Once again, please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And our focus of attention this morning will be on verse 14. It is a delight to be with you this morning. Thank you for the opportunity of ministering the Word of God to you. And as I said at the beginning of the last hour, thank you for giving a church home to at least part of our family. I really appreciate that very much. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Have you ever been in a situation or witnessed a circumstance like this. The telephone rings, and you answer it, only to realize that the person calling is someone with whom you are having a dispute, or who has been offensive 
or irritating in the past. What do you feel like at that moment when that realization dawns after you've answered the telephone? And how does the conversation go when you make that realization? Perhaps it's a family member with whom you disagree over something, such as family finances. Maybe it's a neighbor who has initiated a property dispute or refuses to remove all the junk in his yard or who allows his dogs to terrify the neighborhood. Possibly it's a contractor who did shoddy work on your house. There are many possible scenarios. But seldom do these conversations go well. Often they start out heated and they only get hotter. And how do they end? They end with anger and bitterness and oftentimes with sinful recriminations, hard and harsh words that are spoken back and forth. Is that familiar to you? Well, sadly, probably for most of us, we can remember when we experienced or were sitting in the room and witnessed just this kind of thing. And it's not a very good memory, is it, when those kinds of things come back to mind? Well, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians is in some senses just like one of these conversations. We're only able to listen to one side, like sitting in a room while someone else endures one of these trying telephone conversations. But it's just like this. Think about it with me. In this epistle, Paul must address deep problems in the Corinthian church. He must defend his own ministry, describe the depth of the troubles, the multiple troubles that he has endured. He must call the church to repentance. He must plead for reconciliation and much more. The Corinthians had criticized Paul, had been overzealous in the practice of church discipline, had viewed him as secondary and perhaps even as an object of scorn because of his difficulties. They were proud, miserly, self-centered, willing to accept other pseudo-apostles over Paul. And this epistle is full of these problems. It reads very much like one of these difficult conversations. And yet, it closes with the fullest and most extensive word of blessing that is found in all of Paul's letters. Murray Harris closes his commentary on 2 Corinthians with these words. It's the very last things that you will read in this commentary. He says this, It is a singular paradox that a letter so full of indignation... Is this one working now? Okay, very good. Wasn't sure what to do there, brother. Thank you for your rescue. I hope you see the point, though. A little bit distracted, but in all of this trouble that Paul must address, he concludes his epistle with these wonderful words of hope and prayer and blessing. You know, here's an example of genuine Christian love presented to us in a really delightful form. In these final words of 2 Corinthians, we have a beautiful benediction. Do you know what a benediction is? Sometimes we get it confused with a doxology. Now, many churches conclude their um, worship services with a benediction. It's a word that we use, but maybe we don't always understand it. And I want to distinguish between a benediction and a doxology. 
Benediction is simply a Latin word that's brought over into English, and it means a word of blessing. It's different to a doxology, though it's easy to confuse them. A doxology is a brief expression of praise to God. Across the page in my Bible, 2 Corinthians 11.31, there's a brief doxology. Paul speaks of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever. That's an example within the context. A doxology is a word of praise that we speak to God. It may be brief, tends to be brief, sometimes it may be longer, but it originates with us. It originates on earth, and its object is the triune God of heaven and earth. So a doxology is something that we speak to God. But a benediction is just the opposite. A benediction is a word of blessing that is spoken to us. It originates in heaven. It comes to us from God's representatives, and it expresses a desire for God's bounty to come upon us. And the reason that churches oftentimes include benedictions at the end of the worship service is so that the last word that God's people hear when they leave that service is a word of blessing from God spoken to his people. We want the people of God to go out hearing those words of love and hope and promise and blessing. You know, it's interesting that Paul frequently employs benedictions. All of his epistles begin and end with a benediction. In his greetings, he will say something like this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oftentimes it's more brief than that, but still he will say something like that in his introduction. In his farewells, he likewise expresses a blessing to his recipients. Every one of his epistles ends this way. Now, he doesn't do this simply as an act of custom, the way that we greet people with, hey, how are you? And we always respond with good, even though we don't even think about the question, and usually we don't even mean what we say when we answer. That's just custom. Paul doesn't do it like that. He rather speaks in this way because he genuinely wishes God's people to know the things that he expresses and to grow in the grace of them. You see, the desire of the apostle is for Christians to live with a deep understanding of the spiritual realities which are at the root of their lives. They must know God and not just know about him, but really and truly comprehend his grace and walk through life with an absolute dependence upon him. And that's why he places benedictions at the entry and at the exit of all of his epistles. Now, let's take a look at this benediction that we find here at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 13. It's very familiar to us because we hear it many times. And these final words pick up themes that have been present throughout the letter. Paul speaks of grace to overcome and love that needs to be present in the Corinthian church and fellowship, the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in their midst. He's picking up threads that have been introduced previously in the epistle. But it's really interesting if you think about it, because there's a real sense in which this benediction looks back and pre presents us with ideas that are drawn from the epistle, but it's not a backwards-looking benediction because it actually points the Corinthians and ourselves forward. 
The reasons that they needed these things are obvious. But Paul doesn't want them to dwell on the past and their sins at this moment. Rather, he wants them to seek the remedy and to know its blessed fruits for the future. And the last word that they hear as the letter is read to them, you have to, you have to imagine the setting of this letter. You're the Corinthian church. Now, I know you don't want to be the Corinthian church, but let's pretend for a moment. You're the Corinthian church, and word goes out during the week that a, a letter has arrived from the Apostle Paul. You gather together on the Lord's Day to worship, and one of the elders of the church stands up, and he reads this entire letter to you as it comes. You know, we, we preach verse by verse or section by section. The Corinthians would have heard this at one time at the beginning. And I wonder how much it pinched them as they read it. Because some of them knew that Paul was talking about them as he worked his way through the epistle. It would be very uncomfortable to be sitting there and listening to them. Your spirits would sink. If the Holy Spirit is work in your, at work in your life, you'd feel conviction of sin. And yet, as this epistle draws to a close, the very last thing that you would hear is not, repent, you sinners, it would be the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Amen. You'd hear this word of blessing at the end. There was a great deal of repenting that was necessary in the Corinthian church, but even that must be done in the proper context, and this explains that context. This benediction is full of deep, profound and in some ways, inexplicable things. It presents us with the doctrine of the Trinity. It speaks about love and grace and fellowship or communion. It's an overflowing, overwhelming source of comfort and help for Christians in the midst of a deep and profound struggle. Let's take it apart a little bit and think about what we see here. First, an overview. The first thing that we need to notice about this benediction is that it is a Trinitarian blessing. Now, I want to assert something to you that I hope you'll agree with, and that is that the New Testament authors, the writers of these 27 books from Matthew through Revelation, clearly were Trinitarian in their belief. You know, it really troubles me when I read the writings of certain modern scholars who say, well, you know, Paul wouldn't have recognized the doctrine of the Trinity because it didn't come into the life of the church until A.D. 325 in the 4th century. I, I want to stand up and shout and say, no, 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 and here's proof why. Think about what we have here. Paul, a man who was trained in the best rabbinical school in the world, sat at the feet of Gamaliel, a man who was committed wholeheartedly to Jewish monotheism, who frequently in his epistles expresses the fundamental doctrine of Judaism. You remember Deuteronomy 6.8, Hear, O Israel, what's next? The Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. The Lord our God is one. In 1 Corinthians 8.6, in Galatians 3.20, and in many other places, Paul explicitly affirms the fact that God is one. Here is this man who is wholeheartedly committed to monotheism, to the fact that God is one. But in this blessing to the Corinthians, he places three persons on equal footing. 
Not in some kind of descending order, but rather he presents them to us as three in one, on equal footing, in a blessing that comes to us from God. The one God that he is committed to is expressed to us here in three persons. Not three gods, but one God who is three persons. And interestingly enough, a little bit out of the order that's familiar to us, because he speaks of the Son and the Father and the Spirit. We'll talk about why he puts them in that order in just a few moments. But you see the three persons, the Son, the Father, and the Spirit, working together to bring about salvation for his people. Dear friends, this is one of the most explicit statements in the New Testament that teaches us the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is profound, and it is certainly beyond our comprehension. One of the the great statements from the early church that I, I think is very helpful to us when we come to this moment is to hear the words of Gregory of Nazianzus. He, he was reflecting on the doctrine of the Trinity. Listen to what he said. This is beautiful. He says, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. He thinks of the one, and it makes him think of the three. And when he thinks of the three, It causes him to think of the one, which causes him to think of the three, which causes him to think of the one. It's like a circle that never ends, a a circle of wonder and adoration to the God who is beyond our comprehension, but has revealed himself to us in Scripture as the triune God. What a wonderful statement that is. We, We come to this God with a sense of reverence and adoration and awe because he is so far greater than we are. He's beyond our comprehension. And yet he speaks to us in such a way that we're able to understand his greatness and his majesty and his glory. That's how Paul presents this word of blessing to the Corinthians. Here in the clearest language of a New Testament writer, we find the doctrine of the Trinity. We spoke in the early hour about the Baptist Confession of Faith from 1677. It's really interesting what it does with the doctrine of the Trinity. It adds something that isn't present in the Westminster Confession. It was in the Savoy Declaration of 1658, and the Baptists picked it up. But it says that the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all of our communion and comfortable dependence upon God. You know, I want to live my life in communion with God, and I want to live my life in comfortable dependence upon Him, whatever circumstances I face whether they're blessings or minor difficulties or major difficulties. And all of us in our lives will face things in those categories and perhaps others. I want to have comfortable dependence, especially in the face of the difficulties that at times can come into a person's life. And that comfortable dependence is an understanding, so far as we are able to do so, of the fact that there is one God who is three persons revealing himself in Scripture. The Holy Trinity, blessed forever in majesty and glory, is presented to us here, working together as one to bring the Corinthians to eternal life and to bring us to eternal life. Now, we need to be careful here as we read this text because there's something that Paul's not saying. 
Paul isn't saying that grace comes to us specifically and only from the Lord Jesus Christ, or that God the Father alone is the one who loves us, or that fellowship is the work of the Spirit alone. In fact, to take that view of this text would contradict many other verses in the Bible, which speak about things such as the grace of God the Father, or the love of Christ for us. But rather, as he expresses himself in this way, thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity, he focuses our attention on a wonderful truth. And this is why the persons of the Trinity are in an order that may seem somewhat unfamiliar or unexpected to us. Think about it like this. From one perspective, it is only by the grace of Christ that the Corinthians may know the love of God and the blessings of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's probably why the order is given to us in this way. Now, it might have been different because sometimes the scriptures emphasize the love of God. But we come to the Father through Christ. And in order to know something of the love that God has for his people, our eyes must be opened to us by the grace of Christ. If we come to the Father without Christ, we come to a Father who is a Father of judgment, a Father of righteousness. But when we come to him through our Lord Jesus Christ, we see him in all the fullness and beauty of his love. And so it seems that perhaps Paul is placing the order in this way in order to make us realize the preciousness of the gospel of Christ revealing to us God in all of his beauty and his glory. Remember, he's seeking to help the Corinthians out of their trouble, and he wants to do this through this means. Now, that's an overview of what we have in front of us. Let's think about the, the individual elements of each of these, uh, these parts of this Trinitarian benediction. It follows a pattern. He begins with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that here he employs the full name and title of our Savior. Charles Hodge, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, helps us to understand this. Hodge argues that each of these, Lord, Jesus, and Christ, are intended to bring to our minds certain aspects of his person and his work. When he's referred to as the Lord, we are intended to think of the fact that he is the second person of the Holy Trinity and to contemplate his divine nature. He is really, truly, and fully God in everything that it means to say that God is God. That applies to this one. He is God in all of his fullness. The name Jesus is, of course, the name that was given to him by the angel at his birth. And thus the name Jesus reminds us of the fact that he is a real human nature, that he is really and truly one of us, that he has taken upon himself in all of its fullness our humanity. Of course, that doesn't mean he's a sinner. Sin is something that came upon humanity afterwards because of the fall of Adam and Eve. Sin is not inherent to humanity. But we may look at Jesus and say of him that he is fully and exactly what we are. He is truly God, and he is truly man, and he is Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. By using this term Christ, it speaks to his office, the promised Messiah. He is one person who unites together two natures, a true eternal nature 
as God, a true human nature as man, united together as one in Christ, the promised Messiah, who comes to satisfy the righteous demands of God, to live a holy life of obedience, to offer himself in our place on the cross, to suffer the wrath of God on our behalf, and to bring us salvation. Now, you know, not only do we have here this wonderful, clear Trinitarian statement, but we also have embedded in this Trinitarian statement a wonderful statement about our Lord Jesus Christ. To use theological terms, not only do we have high Trinitarianism, we have high Christology here. And a really good sermon, well, a good series of sermons in the hands of a good preacher, would be to take each of these names and titles of Christ and open them up and demonstrate his person and his work to us. Two natures joined together in one person forever, the Nicene Creed, here from the Apostle Paul. Well, the idea that Paul is seeking to convey in this first element of the benediction is that our Savior, in the fullness of his identity, as the God-man who is the Christ, brings grace to us. He loves his church, and he lavishes his grace upon the church, as divine, as human, and as the Christ. Grace, favor, unmerited love. Not something that is earned, but something that is freely given, dispensed by the triune God through Christ. Flowing, flowing from Christ the Savior to his needy people. And certainly you'd agree with me, the Corinthians were needy people. This grace flows from heaven. Grace, of course, is not a physical commodity, but grace is an essential spiritual virtue. Grace purchased at the cost of his own life, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension to the right hand of God in heaven. You see, all of these things are present in Paul's thought, and he wants the Corinthians to contemplate them. It's easy to come to this text and read it very quickly and say, oh yeah, grace from Jesus. But if we pause for a few moments and we begin to think about it, it's full of rich theology. What God has done for us by giving the second person of the Trinity to become one with us, to die and to satisfy God's wrath, and to be the source and the dispenser of grace. Think about this with me for a moment. Can you imagine Paul? down on his knees, pleading with the God of heaven and earth and asking for copious measures of grace to come upon the Corinthians from the God-man. You know what? There's nothing better that the apostle could do for those Corinthians in the midst of all of their troubles but to seek for the grace of God to come through the Lord Jesus Christ. The eternal one who humbled himself and became man in order to redeem us. The blessing is really simple. It's brief. It's only a few words. But it's amazing when you think about it. Because grace is to the life of the believer what water is to the soil. Without it, there is no growth. There's only barrenness and emptiness. And I live in a place where if there were not water, it would only be barrenness and emptiness. Now, if you came to my neighborhood, you'd see green lawns and you'd see some trees. 
but it will only take about 10 minutes drive from my house to get out to a place where there isn't watering that's done all the time and to see how barren and semi-trop or semi-desert Southern California really and truly is. I live in that kind of place. I know how much water is important. And grace is like that to our souls. Our souls are like a dry and parched desert. But the abundance of grace that comes to us through Christ waters that desert and causes it to bring forth wonderful and beautiful fruit. For the Corinthians, with all of their troubles, Paul seeks the blessings of grace, showers of life-giving grace, because grace is the doorway to the future of the Corinthians. Grace is the blessing of bringing forth good fruit. And here Paul says it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know, if that were the entirety of the benediction, it would be pretty good, wouldn't it? It's very encouraging, but he doesn't stop there. Because it goes on. Notice what's second. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. When the New Testament writers use the word God, most commonly they're referring to God the Father. That's the, the typical term that they use to refer to the, what, the one we call the first person of the Trinity. The grace which comes from Christ helps us to know the love of God. And I'm reminded of the words of our Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed in the upper room with his disciples. You probably have memorized this. Maybe you memorized it as a child. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. What's the rest of it? No one comes to the Father but by me. I think that that's what's behind what Paul is saying here. We come to the Father. We come to know the Father's love through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul here is not talking about our love for God. And that's important and it has its place. But that's not what the focus of attention is is on. Rather, Paul wants the Corinthians to think about God's enormous love for us. And it's grace alone which allows us to know something of the fullness of the depth of the love that God has for the Corinthians and for us. It's as if Paul is writing to them and says, Corinthians, God is not aloof and far away. God is love, to use the language of 1 John. God is is overwhelming in his love. He has given you Christ. What else will he withhold? Because God has given you the Savior, because you have come to have the forgiveness of sins, let this grace overflow in your lives and help you to begin to understand something of the love of God. Now, how do we describe the love of God? How do you possibly take something that we know a little bit about but is really unfathomable to us, how do you take that and describe it in preaching? Well, I don't know. It's beyond parallel. It's above comparison. When Paul seeks to describe the love of God, he says that it surpasses our knowledge. But in that passage, in Ephesians chapter 3, where he talks about the fact that it's beyond our ability to comprehend, he expresses it in spatial terms. He speaks about length and the breadth and the height and the depth of the love of God. And he prays that the Ephesians might know it. The love of God is eternal. 
the love of God is unchangeable because God is love. He is always love. And His love is always expressed to us in the same way. Here in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, this simple phrase, the love of God, points to this amazing reality, God is love, and His love demonstrated to us by Christ's grace is something that we ought to know. And as this troubled church, this Corinthian church, bathes in the love that God has for them, they will be transformed and they will on earth love in an an analogous way to the way that God loves us. The scripture asserts that we are to delight in God's love. When our Lord Jesus prays to the Father for us, he does so because the Father loves us. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that the Holy Spirit sheds the love of the Father into our hearts. We could go on and on describing these passages that speak about the love of God, but it is a marvelous truth and an enormous blessing. And I wonder, what better benediction could be offered that all of these Corinthians, with all of their troubles, would know the love of God that is revealed to them in Jesus Christ. And as I said before, if the benediction stopped there, it would be really good, wouldn't it? But it's not over yet. There's more to come. Look at the third element of this benediction, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit or the communion of the Holy Spirit, depending on which English translation you have in front of you. Here is the third member of the Holy Trinity, the sometimes neglected member But he is an essential part of these wonderful words from the Apostle. Now we need to understand what Paul is saying here. Because once again, this can be misread and misunderstood. It might be possible to look at this, to think about his words, and read it something like this. The fellowship that we have with one another because of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I think that's how Christians read the text. But that would miss the point that Paul is making. Now think about it with me. In the other two cases, the grace of Christ and the love of God, Paul's desire is that they would know blessings that come down from heaven. Grace comes to us through Christ. The love of God is the love of God in heaven. Christ's grace and Christ's love. It seems probable and consistent when understanding this text is that Paul indicates the same kind of idea that is present here. The communion or fellowship, the Greek word is koinonia. I'm sure you've heard that before. The koinonia of the Holy Spirit is not what happens among us, but rather it's the blessings that are brought to us by the Spirit from above. The fullness of spiritual blessings that are lavished upon us by God. The fruit of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just to use the language of Galatians 5.22 and following, we're talking about things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The graces that the Spirit works in us, graces that we would know nothing about if it were not for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God that is shed upon us. If we were to look into other passages of the New Testament, we would find all kinds of wonderful things about the Spirit's working in us. He reminds us of the words of our Lord Jesus. 
He glorifies the Son of God in our midst. He sheds the Father's love into our hearts. He bears witness with us that we are God's children. He seals us, assuring eternal life. He's the down payment of the heavenly world. He anoints us like priests so that we might worship. He's the spirit of adoption, bringing us into the family of God. This is what Paul is describing here. This is the knowing or the knowledge of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's that the Holy Spirit would be at work in the lives of the Corinthians so that all of these spiritual blessings might come to them. This is what he means when he speaks of the communion of the Holy Spirit, knowing these things ever more fully. And that's a great blessing. We come to God the Father through Jesus Christ and we receive from God the Father who loves us all of these benefits and blessings lavished upon us because of the enormity of his love. It's a great blessing. And how are we able to quantify it? What kind of number can we put upon this? It's better than any gift we could ever possibly receive. And we must always remember we deserve nothing of it. It's all of grace, all of mercy, all of kindness. But we're not done yet. We've seen the Father, we've seen the Son, and then we saw the Father, and then we see the Holy Spirit. But there's one more thing that Paul says in this benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There are two things to notice here. The first is very brief. The second I want to spend a little bit more time on. The first is that grace, love, and communion. When Paul says, be with you all, grace, love, and communion are not philosophical concepts. They're not just ideas that hang out there, some kind of spiritual ideas that we admire. But rather, they have a source, they come from heaven, and they have a destination in the lives of God's people. They come from God to women and men like you and me. And God's purpose is that grace and love and communion will be experienced by us. Not just that we'll know about them, but that they'll be active and powerful in their lives. When he says, be with you all, that's his intention. Not just that we as a church can be able to describe these things, but rather that we would know them at work in our lives individually, and of course for the Corinthians corporately, together, as they solve all of the problems that exist in their midst. But the second thing that I want you to notice about this last phrase is this. Paul includes the entire church in this benediction. These are the people who had rejected him, the people who had troubled him, the people who had followed others. And yet he pronounces this word upon all of them. None in the church are excluded from Paul's desire to know these things. You know, when I, when I contemplate this, I go back to that little picture I tried to draw before when the epistle would first be read to the Corinthian church and everybody seated together and they're listening and they're very uncomfortable because they realize that sometimes Paul is talking about them. He had been in their midst. He knew their names. He knew their faces. He knew their homes. He knew what their voices sounded like. He had spent time with each of them. When he's on his knees before God and he's praying for them, it's not just, Lord, bless the Corinthians. 
When he says these words, it's not just, Lord, help the Corinthians in general, but he's thinking about the men and women who had caused him real trouble and real difficulty. He's praying these blessings upon them. These are sinners. These are troublemakers. These are divisive people. These are folks who have caused all kinds of trouble for one another and for Paul. And yet he prays for them. You know what that tells us? It tells us that these things aren't the rewards for good behavior, but they are blessings to seek for all of God's people. And there isn't anyone who names Christ's name who ought to be excluded from these things. This is exactly what the Corinthians needed, because these are words of life and health and growth, and they were intended for all. Every single one of them. That man who stood up to Paul or behind his back spoke against him and undermined him. That woman who was the leader of a faction in the congregation. Paul didn't hold grudges against them. Paul spoke words of blessing upon them. Prayed to God that he would send these things to them. These are words intended for the church. And because they're words intended for the church, they're words intended for us. They're God's purpose for us as a church. For us to seek for others. For us to know them themselves. Even for those who have harmed and wounded us. They're words that we ought to pray. When someone names the name of Christ, this is what we ought to desire for them. And they're wonderful, aren't they? These words are not the result of our good works. Paul didn't look at the congregation and say, well, you know, there's a third of them who have been faithful to me and faithful to Christ, and I'll pray for God's blessing upon them. Praise for them all. They're not the result of our good works. They go before anything we do, and they serve as the only basis upon which our obedience may flow. If anything good is to happen in the Corinthian church, it has to start here, you see. Repentance starts with grace and love and fellowship. Reading the book of 2 Corinthians may be like overhearing one of those difficult conversations where we started. But the ending sure is good, isn't it? When Paul put down the phone, he wasn't fuming and steaming about the conversation. He was praying for God's blessing upon this, this group who troubled him so much. Now, folks, I cannot preach to you this text and tell you three ways to put these things into practice in your life. I can't tell you to do five things in order to receive these gifts of grace. This is not law. This is all gospel, is what this text is. It's all about God's free mercy, kindness, love, grace, extended to people that we know were troublemakers and sinners. And yet Paul extends God's grace to them. Without his presence and without his power, God's presence, we are nothing and we can do nothing. Even our duties must be based in his being and in his acts, the fact that God is a trinity, the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ is divine and human in one person, the foundation of our communion and comfortable dependence upon him. Really, 
all that we've done is glance at the surface of this deep reservoir of comfort and strength. To know something of the splendor of our Trinitarian God, to receive his grace, to be enfolded by his love, and to know communion with him, and because of his work in us, communion with one another. That's an extension of this. This is far more than we can ever fully comprehend. But it is a gift. And we may know it. We may know it as individuals. We may know it as a church. So when you go from this place, go blessed by the Lord. Go in faith. And remember that it all starts with him in his greatness and majesty and glory. And as we learn this lesson and look to him for our life, we'll see these things come to greater reality in our lives. Go in peace, and may the Lord's benediction be on you. Amen. Let's pray.